This is an ABC podcast. Hello and welcome to This Week. From Canberra on Ngunnawal Country, I'm Melissa Clark. For months, the West has resisted sending tanks to Ukraine, but this week that all changed. We'll look at how the new tanks could alter the direction of the war. And the federal government is threatening to regulate online dating sites. Would that make them safer? First up, though... The Prime Minister, Anthony Albanese, flew into Alice Springs this week as soaring crime in the central Australian town spilled into a national crisis. I was screaming, absolutely screaming at the top of my lungs. Help, someone help. They said, give me the grog, give me the grog. Um, I want the grog, give me the grog. If the level of violence was occurring in Brisbane or in Melbourne or in Hobart or in Sydney, there would be outrage. I've lived in Alice Springs for 36 years and I have never felt so unsafe and so scared. Crime has skyrocketed since long-term alcohol bans were lifted across hundreds of remote communities last July. And this week, the Federal and Northern Territory governments reinstated some alcohol restrictions. These are complex problems and they require a full solution Uh, which won't be uh, immediate, uh, which require different levels of government, but to work together. They stopped short of reimposing bans for town camps and remote communities, but they've asked a senior bureaucrat to advise next week whether they should be reinstated, which would require communities to opt out of being dry if they want to. Crime has always really been a fact of life here. Break-ins aren't uncommon. You know, most people end up having to replace a car window or two a year because someone's thrown a rock through it. But undeniably, over the last six months, something has seriously shifted here. Samantha Joncha is an ABC News journalist in Alice Springs. You know, police statistics say that assaults, property crimes and other offences have all increased by around 50% compared to the year before. Everyone knows at least a few people who came home from summer vacations to find their homes had been broken into. Break-ins continue and they're happening in rather alarming ways. You know, they might be confronted by intruders. For health staff, they're seeing more serious assaults more often at the hospital and domestic violence services are stretched to their limits even more than they usually are. So things have really gotten worse in those last few months and at the same time we've had alcohol bans expiring in in July last year. Can we draw a link between those two things? There's certainly a general consensus among police and others on the front line. You know, about six months ago, just like you say, a number of communities and town camps around Alice Springs that had been dry became wet. So suddenly there was uh, an increased access to alcohol. And when you look at the stats, there is a sudden jump around this time. And that has continued to escalate upwards. Now, you know, figures released last week by anti-police show 43% increase in assaults, uh, 53% in alcohol-related assaults and commercial break-ins and home invasions which is what you know we talk about so often here as well, have jumped more than 50%. It's worth noting, though, that summer is often a busier time for police here in Alice Springs. The hot weather, 
Summer floods and other factors drive large numbers of people from remote communities into Alice Springs. And because there is very little emergency accommodation and transport back home can be hard to come by, families from remote communities can get stuck here without resources. And that can also contribute to crime over time. And police think that's a little bit of what we're seeing play out here, too. So can you give us a bit of an understanding of how we got to this point? I mean, you mentioned some communities shifting from uh, being dry communities, not having alcohol present, to being wet communities, uh, alcohol being able to come in. There's obviously a lot of history here, you know, probably going back 15 years to the intervention John Howard brought in. Can you explain to us what happened at that point and what's happened in the meantime to get us where we are today? Yeah, so just like you say, about 15 years ago, this story starts. Uh, It was in the dying days of the Howard government when, during a similar moment of national attention in Central Australia's social issues, a number of sweeping uh, and immediate measures were brought into effect. Well, ladies and gentlemen, uh, Mr Bruff and I have called this news conference to announce um, a number of major measures to deal with what we can only describe as a national emergency in relation to the abuse of children in Indigenous communities in the Northern Territory. Uh, Anti-discrimination laws were temporarily suspended. Um, Communities were faced with forced income management. Land was compulsorily acquired. Employment programs were suspended. And crucially, the military was brought in. And there were blanket alcohol bans. Now, it's these bans, which continued up until about six months ago, which we're talking about. A number of other measures related to the intervention have been sort of wound back over time. But those alcohol bans have um, remained in place. And, you know, it depends who you ask, but speak to most Indigenous leaders and residents of remote communities, and they'll tell you that they remain traumatized by this time. They say it took power away from them, and the legacy of these sweeping changes are still being felt for them today. Because of the intervention, all these people had to come into Alice Springs and other communities. Now their children are running amok in the towns. And I spoke to a number of people this week who said that the current crime crisis here in Alice Springs, it really started 15 years ago and that the young people who are committing crimes are children of the intervention. And it's time for these kids to go back on the country and learn their culture, their language and who they are in this country. Not be locked up in jails, in prisons. They are so angry with life. So parents have to take them home on the country. That's the only way it's going to help them. So this issue over the last couple of months coming to a head, we've now had Prime Minister Anthony Albanese flying into Alice Springs. What's been the outcome of that visit? So as of Tuesday this week, um, a number of new restrictions have been brought in. So on Mondays and Tuesdays here in Alice Springs, no one will be able to buy takeaway alcohol and bottle shops, which have already had restricted hours, will have even more restricted hours. So they'll only be open from three to seven on the days that they are open. And sales have also now been limited to one transaction per person per day. So I do ask the community to understand we do not take these decisions lightly but these are measures to reduce the amount of alcohol in our community. And by reducing that amount of alcohol, we will reduce the harm. Now, this is just a three-month trial, but it is quite different from what we had before. Now, under the old legislation, people from addresses in dry areas, which were places where only First Nations people live, could not purchase any alcohol. Now, we have people who check licenses on the way in to um, purchase alcohol, so this has been sort of strictly enforced for a long time now. We also have a banned drinker register here in the NT, and if you're on that, you can't buy alcohol. So what's crucially different about these new restrictions is that they apply to every Everyone. And this has generally been welcomed by members of the community who say that the old laws were racist. 
There's been a range of different views we've had about how effective this might be, and I think they've ranged from everything from why aren't there more comprehensive bans to alcohol is only one part of the problem, why isn't there more of a focus on support services? Do we suspect that there is more coming here? Yeah, certainly. That that was certainly, um, you know, without making any promises, that was hinted at. Even the police commissioner here in the Northern Territory acknowledges that, um, you know, he said uh, that we can't arrest our way out of this. The jails are full and it's not making a difference. When you fill the jail and the social issues continue to present, what it indicates clearly is we can't arrest our way out of this. I hear the calls of the Australian Defence Force and the Australian Federal Police. Um, that's treating the outcome of something that's already broken. There is a very widely held um, belief and understanding that the alcohol dependency um, that we might be talking about at the moment is not itself a problem. It's it's more a symptom of really serious problems that people are dealing with at home. And we had one organisation, one Aboriginal organisation, come out this week and point to the chronic neglect of remote communities, which a number of people say um, really ramped up post-intervention. We see um, you know, chronic underfunding. We see fewer and fewer services available Remote schools aren't adequately supported. Housing um, is a ongoing crisis with people living in seriously overcrowded conditions. It's a widely held belief that unless you are taking a holistic approach to the number of factors that are sort of driving people to alcohol and, you know, possibly to then crime, you're not going to make a serious long-term change. You know, a lot of the focus has been around the alcohol, but I know that the youth crime and the issues with youth is not alcohol fueled. Um, Kids are breaking into bottle loads because they want to break into things. Um, And so very disappointing to hear about the news um, around, you know, funding for extra policing and and the alcohol legislation because it's not not a solution. We know that that doesn't work for our community. A number of people that I spoke to on Tuesday were frustrated not to see domestic and family violence services be meaningfully funded or to see any recognition of the fact that there is this other crisis that has been ongoing in Alice Springs for decades. You know, um, First Nations women in the Territory are 40 times more likely than non-Indigenous women to wind up in hospital. Um, This is the murder capital of Australia. We've um, had four First Nations women killed by their partners in the last two years. Things really are very serious here. And this week has also been an opportunity for people in town camps and in those frontline services to say that, you know, ultimately the Northern Territory needs a bigger piece of the pie. So domestic violence funding is allocated on a per capita basis. Alice Springs is a very small town, um, only about 35,000 people, um, but the need here is profound. There is one more question I think it's it's really important that we touch on. The federal government has been really focused on advancing the case for an Indigenous voice to parliament, so a, a body that would give Indigenous people a, a bigger say in policies that affect them. Where does the voice of the, or the idea of it fit into this very real debate about very serious problems that we've been confronting nationally this week? Yeah, we, we have heard from some people that talking about the voice at this time is a, is a distraction and, you know, you need to uh, address what's happening here in Alice Springs before you move on to that. But that isn't at all a widely held belief. You know, a number of people that I spoke to this week said that the voice could be an antidote to the kind of legacy that's been left by the intervention. And given how much emphasis people would like to see placed on therapeutic solutions and and long-term outcomes that genuinely lift thousands of people out of poverty and and 
really re-empower people who feel like they haven't had autonomy for a long time. They see the voice as a huge opportunity to to set this right. And and there are all a number of people I spoke to this week say that, you know, the voice is maybe the solution that could help create more of the long-term solutions needed here. Samantha Joncha is an ABC News journalist in Alice Springs. After months of resistance, Germany announced this week that it would finally send leopard tanks to Ukraine and allow other European countries to do the same. Its Chancellor, Olaf Scholz, said its goal is to make two tank battalions available with its allies. Hours later, the US President Joe Biden announced America will send tanks too. Today I'm announcing that the United States will be sending 31 Abram tanks to Ukraine, the equivalent of one Ukrainian battalion. Secretary Austin has recommended this step because it will enhance the Ukraine's capacity to defend its territory and achieve its strategic objectives. The tanks have been the focus of a heated debate and indecision in the West as Ukraine has lobbied for more offensive weapons. Now the question is how many tanks can be supplied to Kyiv and how fast. It's actually unthinkable even three or four months ago that this would have happened. And the reason being, I guess, for those people who aren't military aficionados, is that the main battle tank is the heavy metal of, of any army. It's the it's a set centerpiece uh, in terms of its armament, its mobility and its armour. And even though in and of itself it can't necessarily change a battle, uh, it is, you know, right from you know, when you're a child playing with toy soldiers all the way to a professional designing an armed force, it is the thing that, uh, around which other, other elements of your force uh, revolve. Samir Puri is a senior fellow at the International Institute for Strategic Studies in Singapore. So the country that took the lead was the United Kingdom by offering up its Challenger 2 main battle tanks. And it did that, I think, to spur the others on to say, this is possible, follow our lead. That's a role that the British government has played quite consistently since the outbreak of this this full-scale Russian invasion a year ago. But the two other big countries are are Germany and the USA, as you've mentioned. And and why is that? Well, firstly, the USA is, of course, Ukraine's biggest funder of its military. Billions of US dollars have been transferred in, in military equipment, in financial assistance since this invasion. So for the Americans to send the M1 Abrams tank, which is actually very famous from the first Gulf War, 1991 Operation Desert Storm. Those who are old enough will remember the defeat of Saddam Hussein's army in the desert around Kuwait and in Kuwait. The M1 Abrahams fires a depleted uranium round and is is able to fire that round from a distance further than many of its tank adversaries could fire back from. So that's something that is is quite notable. The Germans, the Germans have the Leopard 2, which is a tank name that's now quite familiar, I think, to a lot of people following the news. Germany is, is of course, the EU's biggest economic power. So there's always a symbolism of, of European support for, for the Ukrainians. But just to sum all that up, when you think about these tank models, Challenger 2, M1 Abrams, Leopard, all of these are relics of the Cold War. They came into service. The Leopard 2, by the way, is 1979. Uh, That's when it entered service. So these were tanks that were, believe it or not, designed to fight the Soviet Union's armoured forces in a hypothetical war that would have taken place across east-west Germany, across the Warsaw Pact back in the 1980s. 
there's a sort of strange symbolism in which these pieces of equipment are basically doing what they were conceived to do, albeit 30, 40 years later. So there is some some sort of strange irony there. They're Cold War relics, but they're still the central piece of military hardware that everything else needs to be planned around. Yeah, they, they're, they're old. There are continual upgrades around the armour, around the sensory equipment, so they don't become outdated in that regard. Uh, but the other thing uh, that we should remember about the nature of the Russia-Ukraine war is it's pretty old-fashioned. And some of the, the battles that we, you know, we're used to seeing footage of on the news now they, they would be recognisable during the Cold War era. Some of the weapon systems, maybe not so much the drones, but this is armoured artillery, infantry warfare, fighting through trenches, into cities, through mud, through snow. It's gruelling, and actually the main battle tank is, is very well suited as a, as a weapon for the Ukrainians to use. There's been significant reluctance on behalf of Germany to provide tanks. So why the reticence in taking this step from Germany in particular? I mean, that's really one of the most interesting and important factors in in this whole main battle tank saga. And it's really about political ideology and identity, I think, more so than anything else. I mean, everyone knows their history. Germany has taken immense steps, West Germany, since 1945, and unified Germany since 1991, uh, to come to terms with and overcome its own difficult history of, of imperial warfare during the Nazi era and before. And you know, Germany has done that extremely competently. Uh, it's a very moderate country. It's not a militarized country. It has a series of temperate politicians, Angela Merkel to Olaf Scholz onwards, um, it has been a huge mental barrier for the German government, especially a SPD, so slightly sort of centre-left coalition that they have in, in power at the moment, to actually think that supplying these offensive weapons of war could be something that is part of a, uh, a way to end this war. Just one final observation on this. This, of course, has been a propaganda coup for the Russians, because there now, obviously, the Russian government is obsessed with World War II, they call it the Great Patriotic War, 1941 to 45. And they do that because 1941 was the year Germany invaded Russia. They're saying, well, the last time German tanks rolled over into Ukraine, heading towards Russia, look what happened. It was the 1940s. It's happening again. Uh, and that's where the allusions are to their sort of phantom fascists sitting in Kiev that the, the Russian government have, have said they're fighting against. So all sorts of historical, cultural and ideological accusations and ghosts of history sort of reanimating themselves during this debate. Russia has launched a wave of missiles within hours of the tank announcements that we had from both Berlin and Washington, and they've threatened more. Are these concerns about further escalation beyond what we've seen so far, are they justified in your view? The concerns are absolutely justified because all wars have a tendency towards escalation. And escalation is always interactive, which means one side does something, the other side responds and tries to counter it or to outdo it, so on, so on, so on. The missile strikes you mentioned in particular, they are probably more part of the pattern that we've been seeing, more or less since uh, the onset of winter, where these long-range Russian munitions have been fired from Russian bombers, uh, from the Black Sea, from ships, possibly from Russian territory to strike all the way across Ukraine. So that in itself is not new. And the Russians are attempting to do as much damage as they can. Just one note on timescales. The British government was uh, provided some clarity in the, in the recent days 
saying the training for the Challenger 2 tanks for Ukrainian crews means that by the time that they're put into service in Ukraine, it will be late March. So we've got a real window where this escalatory dynamic could take hold between now where we are, mid-late January, late March, when these tanks start, the first of these tanks start to arrive. And the Russians, for their part, will be trying to achieve what they can on the battlefield uh, before these tanks come into service. The tanks mark the next stage in what really has been a, a gradual but continual evolution in what's being provided to Ukraine from outside the direct theatre of conflict. I mean, we have started, you know, from an Australian point of view, we started with providing non-lethal aid. Uh, We now provide Bushmasters. Uh, We've gotten to the point of providing tanks now. Is the contribution being made to Ukraine from the international Western community now one that is enough to tip the balance? Or is this another step in the gradual process we've seen over the last 12 months? Well, that, that's a great question. And ultimately, the answer is is no one knows. And that's where you have the big splits over how to really understand this conflict and, and decide what to do. Because there's one set of, of experts and, and people who, who have an insight into this, which think that no matter how much of this conventional military support you provide, all these weapons, vehicles, artillery, Ukraine can't win a total victory because the Russians aren't going to totally collapse and retaking the Crimean Peninsula and Donetsk and Luhansk cities, which have been occupied by Russian-backed forces since 2014, long before this invasion, is probably going to be impossible. Another side to the argument says that, well, actually, the Ukrainians have demonstrated such a will to fight that give them the tools and they will push the Russians out and collapse them. Personally speaking, I'm of the former category, and that's only because I, earlier in my career, spent a year working in Ukraine at the outset of the first conflict, And I I lived in the Donetsk People's Republic. I've seen the Russian occupation firsthand. And eight years later, I think that the chance that Russia would give up some of those territories is is very small. I think that the ability of the Ukrainians to maintain the tempo of operations they had around Kharkiv and Kherson, it's going to be less easy to do that the closer you get to to the Russian border. The way I'd round all that up is to say that what Australia is doing, what Britain is doing, what the Americans and Germans are now doing, it's going to be enough to keep the Ukrainians in the fight. It's going to keep the, the, the military balance will continue to tip one side or the other. But I simply don't see a decisive victory for either side. Eventually, politics, negotiations, God forbid, will have to come back in. Uh, and that might be not for another year. It might not be for another year and a half. That's why these tanks are going to be, I think, in the thick of it across 2023. Samir Puri is a senior fellow at the International Institute for Strategic Studies and author of Russia's Road to War with Ukraine. If you've ever used an online dating app, there's a fairly good chance you've faced some awful abuse. A recent study by the Australian Institute of Criminology found that three quarters of dating app users had faced some form of sexual violence in the past five years. One in three was subject to in-person sexual violence after meeting someone on the app, some with horrific consequences. Days after 31-year-old Danielle Finlay-Jones was found with severe injuries in a Cranebrook home, police closed in on her alleged attacker. Police believe the two connected online on a dating app. 
This week, the federal government and advocacy groups met with the companies behind dating apps like Tinder and Bumble in an attempt to improve safety. Catherine Burney is the director of the National Women's Safety Alliance and she was at the meeting. So for a lot of our members, some of the discussions that they've been having have been about catfishing. Now, catfishing is a behaviour where photos of a seemingly verified person have been gamed on an app system uh, and the person doesn't actually know who they're speaking with. Some of the impacts that our members have had from that are ex-partners who have set up multiple profiles with multiple photos after separation. We also have been discussing stalking. So one of the things that apps do to increase their usability is incentivize linking social media platforms to your online dating profile. Now, in terms of usability, this is great. You know, this is the music I like. This is what I'm listening to on my Spotify. But actually, it's very locational as well. And so suddenly people are finding that they're getting direct messages through Instagram and or Facebook where potential matches have actually found them and, and are trying to make contact through that way without that sort of consent of here's my number, contact me directly happening. All right. So in these discussions, uh, we had the the government, we had advocates like yourself, we had the tech companies coming to the table. You were there. What needs to change? What was the discussion focused on between all of the groups gathered together? I think what was really great was understanding what's possible. Um, You know, we had members from Match there who own Tinder. Um, We had Bumble. We had Grindr. Um, So I think in terms of concrete actions, none were sort of put in place, but that's okay because this is a kickoff for something that is relatively new in terms of a policy context and we need to understand what's available. So I think what I found really heartening was there is a lot of innovation and sort of pioneering of products happening in that space and there's a lot of willing in terms of government and different regulators for how we can put that in place in Australia. So it might not be at the stage of implementing practical changes right now. But what are some of the things that are on the horizon that we might look at introducing or the dating apps might be convinced is features they they might be convinced to put into uh, their apps to make them safer? Do we have some examples of what they might be? Sure. So one of the things that I'm particularly interested in from the Match.com perspective is there's an AI bot that is within app at the moment. And what's happening is uh, when people are writing back messages, um, the AI is scanning language for tone but also language for words and you'll actually have a bot sort of pop up and say, this seems to be a bit aggressive or are you sure you want to send this? And I really think that when people are responding to either a rejection or, or a hurtful situation, adding that circuit breaker is really important because we all know from our online behavior in our life, it's really easy to shoot from the hip and say something that potentially you don't mean. So I think having a a circuit breaker there with the AI function is excellent. Um, I think some of the protections that Bumble have put in place in terms of how AI can pick up intimate photos that are potentially unwanted um, and that won't be revealed. I think that's really important. All these kind of technologies to help people feel secure because when we think about safety in terms of a romantic 
relationship. It's really a mutual obligation, especially if it's happening online. It's an obligation for people to understand what their rights are, what they should and should not accept online, but also how to behave. I guess this is also difficult because there are circumstances where people feel unsafe and it's been an unintentional consequence of someone's behaviour. But we also have people who are intentionally using dating apps to stalk people, to follow exes and a range of other things, no doubt. There has also been discussion this week about whether people should be able to access these apps if they have a criminal record. Would that kind of measure have a beneficial impact in your view? Look, we're, we're in favour of criminal checks on dating apps, absolutely, of course. I mean, it, it can't hurt, but we can't have that as a silver bullet solution because if we're getting 13% of complainants nationally going to the police through a formal channel and then from that we're getting a 2 to 6% conviction rate, we really need to think about the efficacy as, of that as a, as a protection model. So, you know all for the criminal check, but I also want to see work happening in sexual violence judicial reform in tandem. Catherine Burney is Director of the National Women's Safety Alliance. And if you're in an abusive situation or know someone who is, call 1800RESPECT. That's 1800 737 732. Well, that's this week's episode. Now, if you like the pod, please make sure you subscribe. This week is produced by Madeline Jenner, Nell Whitehead, Anna John and me, Melissa Clarke.